0: This is the ETH podcast, and I'm glad you're joining us. My name is Jennifer Kakshori, and I'm here with two fascinating people. One of them is Adina Rum and the other one is Churchill Agutu. Adina's days seem to have at least 36 hours. Her aim is to fight poverty in the world. And to do so, she is, among other things, the executive director of ETH4D, as well as the CEO of Policy Analytics which is an ETH spinoff. Did I get it right?
1: Um, Yes, that's correct.
0: And Churchill Agutu is getting his PhD at ETH4D. By the way, for our listeners, we will tell you about ETH4D a bit later in this episode. Churchill's field of research is in energy service access in sub-Saharan Africa. Is that correct as well?
2: Yeah. Um, so I'm a student at the at the Energy Politics Group at the ETH, and we are working in collaboration with the Kigali Collaborative Research Center um, in Rwanda.
0: The ETH podcast is a guest at the podcast tower in Kraftwerk Zürich, which is part of the podcast club, by the way. Today we'll be talking about poverty and how poverty can be tackled with getting access to renewable energy in the off-grid sector. Adina and Churchill, do you remember a specific situation of a power blackout? <laughs>
2: I should actually mention that I'm from Kenya, so I, I grew up in Kenya. I spent most of my um, my teenage and my young years in Kenya and moved to South Africa um, later on. And I would say that, you know, live, having lived in, in both countries, you know, blackouts are, it, it's really almost a norm. You know, you, you you can have situations where, you know, you have like one or two days um, without electricity. And it, it, it's really, it, it's something that, you know, it, it, it's almost like there's even memes, you know, for these this idea of, you know, blackouts. Yeah, so... For sure, it's been for me.
0: And Adina, you've lived in Kenya as well, but you grew up in Switzerland and you've lived in many places, on many continents, in many countries... What what's the blackout situation like for you?
1: Yeah, I've also experienced quite um, some blackouts. And there is actually one one specific one that I remember very vividly. I was with my uh, friend and col- colleague, uh, Carol Nikesa. We were sitting at home and the power went off. And initially we started working on our computers and getting annoyed that the battery wouldn't last as long as you wanted to work and all of that. And then at some moment she said, you know what? In the old days, we would just tell each other stories and uh, then we started telling each other stories and she told me the story of of her life, how she got to where she is now. And I told her about my life and it was really this like beautiful and and bonding experience.
0: There are many places without electricity at all or not accessible as it is i mean here in switzerland we're just very used to switching on the light and if there's a blackout it's a big story in the newspaper and uh, we we don't really know how to handle it as well as people who are used to it can you tell us what it's like to live without electricity what does it mean for people who don't have access to easy ways of getting electricity
2: I'll say there's almost even these different levels to it. You know, I, I grew up in a, in a relatively middle class home, you know, and we lived in the city, you know, and so forth. We had access to electricity, you know, and so every now and then you'd have your days when like there's no electricity and, you know, you'd kind of go through like that one or two days and maybe, maybe food will go bad or, you know, and, and you just have to to live with it, you know. But then there's other places, um, for instance, you know, in my rural home where my grandparents lived, where, you know, um, early in, in the 90s and even the early 2000s, you know, um, there were was no electricity there you know and and for us it just meant that you know when, when we go home to visit family you can't stay for like two three weeks during the holiday you you'd almost stay for like maybe four or five days just long enough to make sure that you know the ice is still cold in the cooler box you know and, and they still like they still food to you know at least to, to sort of stay in in that area you know so just in terms of explaining what it means i think for me honestly like having the privilege of having electricity was definitely beneficial but then you see that you know that there are some inconveniences you know that um you experience ha- going through that you know when you then um in in terms of the work that I do now, though, you know, I'm really in that space where we are focusing on this large population in sub-Saharan Africa that doesn't have access to electricity, you know, and, and it's it's almost 600 million people now who don't have access to electricity. And and when you think of it, you know, it means that people don't have access to the most basic of services, right? Things like lighting, for instance, right, which allows you to to spend a few extra hours, you know, just of your day. You know, doing something that you would need to do just with access to to light, right? There are things like basic healthcare services. You know, again, it comes back to this idea of lighting. You know, in a hospital, for instance, where you know, let's say a a mother wants to give birth, and you know, there is no light for the doctor to do what needs to be done. You know, those are just little again inconveniences that are the difference between you know, um, just having an improved quality of life. You know, one of the very interesting stories also that I came across, interesting statistics, was that you know, the, there's this map that sort of shows that in 2017, um, you know, the population of people who died as a result of, you know, lack of access to clean water. And you'd see that, you know, like on average, there are more than 100,000 people, at least per country in, in sub-Saharan Africa, who are dying as a result of, you know, lack of access to clean water, which can be improved or can be enabled through access to um, energy or electrification um, services. So, yeah, I think for me, it's just that idea that lack of access to energy and the services that is enabled, you know, denies you the most basic of things that many people take for granted.
0: Adina, you're nodding. What were your experiences? You worked on your PhD in Kenya, also on the subject of access to electricity. What's the importance of getting access? How can you fight poverty with energy?
1: Um, yeah, I think one important point, and that I think your story also of referring to your grandparents and you know how it was for them, and then how it was for you, also relates to that. Is you know generally globally there has been tremendous um, improvements in terms of access uh, to to energy, and also I mean Kenya is just one example for that. As I looked up the numbers in 1990, around 800,000 people had access to electricity, and now it's 27 million in Kenya. So I mean that's just you know, crazy, um, amazing uh, progress. Yet at the same time, as you also said, Churchill, there's still large number of people who miss access. And I think we see that in many, in many aspects um, of life. On the one hand, there has been tremendous progress and you know we've, we've never seen the progress that you know, has been made in, in the past few decades. At the same time, there is still so many people who live without access to energy, without access to clean water, You know, way too many children dying before the age of five. So both are true, tremendous progress. And yet there's still a lot of work to do.
0: On a website that you sent me called ourworldindata.org, there's a figure that says that over 87% of the world has access to energy. What does a figure like that mean for countries such as Kenya or Rwanda? You, you're, uh, Churchill, your research is in Rwanda. You've been in Kenya, Adina. What does this figure mean? It sounds like it's sort of okay. Okay, was well, more than more than half, much more than half. But for the population.
2: Yeah, I mean, as we've mentioned before, um, my research is specifically in, in in Rwanda and thinking about, you know, um, how can you use public policy as a tool to accelerate this transition towards 100% access to modern, uh, affordable and clean energy services um, by, uh, by a specific time. So in Rwanda, their target is to get to this by 2024. You know, uh, but just to also contextualize it, a lot of times when we're talking about, you know, access to electricity, we're really looking at how many people are connected to a source of electricity. And um, this is sort of changing now because especially in the sector, you're realizing more that it's not access to electricity that enables, you know, development or improved quality of life. It's access to energy services, you know. So when I look at Rwanda, they say that 52% of the population has access to electricity. And and this includes both on-grid and off-grid electrification solutions, you know.
0: Off-grid means that it's with solar panels?
2: Um. uh, So basically, so so really, there's there's traditionally electricity has been provided through a centralized um system, right? So you have like a a point of generation, and then you have your transmission and distribution lines, and you know everyone is connected to the grid, right? And what's happened over time is that you know grid extension has become a challenge for many reasons. You know it can be the quality of institutions, it can be that people, rural populations, are residing very far away from the existing grid, and so you know that grid may not reach them. In the near future, right? And so, as a result of the fact that, you know, PV, solar PV technology has become cheaper over time, and, you know, there's other enabling factors like mobile money or access to mobile payments, you know, they, they've now allowed for private sector companies to develop business models that can provide electrification services using systems that are not connected to the grid. And so, this is now this new off grid electrification solution. Those are, so you can almost think of grid extension as, you know, centralized. Um, or grid um, electrification, and you can think of off-grid as decentralized um, electrification uh, solutions. And so, yeah, in that case, it, it within the decentralized solutions, you also have, you know, generation systems that kind of power a village, you know, and like a large um, population. And so, those are like mini grids. And so, in that case, yes, you do have. Um, now it's becoming um, there's more generation through uh, solar power plus batteries, but then you have places where they're doing it through um, hydropower as well, at least based. Like my my knowledge so far, those are the ones that I know of. I mean, there's also been talks of like you know mini grids through wind, but you know it's not really it's not picking up. Um, then you have like standalone systems, which are sort of smaller systems that are designed to serve like individual households. So you have like your solar panel, you have your battery, and then you have like appliances attached to it. So you can have a TV. Um, usually, it's mostly um, lighting and uh, mobile phone charging. But then you're kind of having TVs being added, you're having radio, you're having fans as well. So those are like more the decentralized um, electrification solutions. So those, and, and now that, you know, th- there's this enabling environment that has allowed for provision of these decentralized electrification solutions, you know, it's almost like now th- there's more opportunity to get to that target of, you know, 100% access to more affordable and clean energy services, you know, much faster. So for me, that's kind of how I look at it. You know, there's a number that, yes, we want to, like, this number of people have access to electricity but it goes beyond just thinking about the number of people it's thinking about you know what do what are the services you know how many people have access to energy services the services that improve their quality of of life yeah
0: adina is it a similar
1: thing in kenya is it comparable to what uh, Churchill is talking about in rwanda um, yes, uh, definitely. And and I think one important thing one always has to think about when we look at these large averages, you know, like 87% of the world. It's good to know these numbers. It's good to have these numbers. I, I also think it's an excellent website that you <laughs> that you refer to. I, I use it a lot um, personally. But I think then the question becomes more, okay, but how does it look like in an individual country? And then how does it look like if we compare urban population versus rural population? And then very fast, we will see that there are enormous differences between different countries and then also within country you know like whether you're like in Nairobi or if you're like some small village in the the countryside the situation will look very different and I think to build you know sensible solutions both in the private sector and also for what policies make sense one also has to be aware of these differences.
0: Can you tell us how this can change though how things can get better also looking at diversity in in one country how can an overall uh, better situation evolve?
1: I think the good news is things are already getting better. And uh, we we can really see that in, in many different areas of life. Energy access is one of them. Also, if we look at uh, child mortality, at the time our, our parents were born, roughly around one in five children would die before the age of five. Today, it's one in 25 still way too much. And, you know, we can and should do better than that. But we already see a you know big improvements so i think that's one important message people should you know should know at the same time we now are in a situation where much of that progress is at risk so we see climate change we now have the pandemic and the consequences of the pandemic and uh, you know other environmental risks and we have to pay attention that we don't lose the progress that has been done in terms of poverty reduction
0: and how can that be ensured regarding climate change and the pandemic how can progress carry on?
1: You know, excellent question. Um, and I think a lot of people are thinking about that. I think very broadly what what we know is we need collaboration. And I think what I'm excited about is the collaboration between researchers and policymakers and industry also in in, in some cases. And I really think we learn so much because of fruitful collaborations between these different actors. And that's also where a lot of the groups of ETH for Development you know, come in and their work uh, comes in, and and we, we were able to learn so much about poverty reduction. What are effective strategies in that regard? And often we got surprised. You know, things worked we didn't expect to work, and and also the other way around.
0: I promised our listeners that I
1: would tell them, or we would tell them about ETH4D. What's the aim of ETH4D, Adina? So the goal of ETH for development is to strengthen ETH's commitment and contribution towards global sustainable development. And we do that through different avenues. We do that through teaching at ETH Zurich and also in Sub-Saharan Africa through partnerships with universities there. And we also do that through supporting research and innovation of different groups, we are Quite a large network, over 30 research groups, different um, centers who, who contribute. We engage with students. Once per month, we have lunches where students meet and exchange ideas, support each other, all working in the realm of global sustainable development. What can research do in all of this? So research and innovation Can play a very important role in poverty reduction. Um, And I think one example is lighting. You know, initially it took so much work to like make a fire, to like get some light. And then technology changed. You know, at some point people understood maybe you could use fat, you know, and burn that. And so you can have some sort of a candle, you know, from animal fat. And then, you know, that was still relatively slow progress. But like up to today, where we have like super efficient uh, light bulbs. Bulbs that require little, very little work of us to, you know, be able to make enough money to buy a light bulb. And there has been just like tremendous technological progress compared to where we, where we started. And, you know, some people calculated it's like light became like half a million times cheaper compared to our labor force than it used to be. And that's just like one tiny example, but we see that technological progress like can improve lives among very many dimension and at ETH4D we really want to support research and innovation that can improve lives of people and in communities in low income settings that's really what we're we're committed to and many groups at ETH from very different angles and backgrounds and disciplines contribute to that what research then also can do is really test and try out different technological solutions and measure to what extent does that then really have an impact or make a difference in people's lives. And here an example is my PhD research, right? There we looked at solar lighting, also new technology, and we we tested, okay, what difference does it make when people in rural Kenya have access to this type of solar lighting? What, What improves compared to how it previously was when they used kerosene lights you know do they get healthier can the children study more do they save money so these these type of questions and research can really help us understand, like, how do these different types of innovations actually improve lives? And um, I think it's really great because a lot of, of progress has been made in recent decades with testing out and, and trying different approaches towards poverty reduction. And we found some ways, like, for example, direct cash transfers that people didn't think before that they would be so effective. Um, and they, they really help um, alleviating poverty in, in many dimensions.
0: And what about your specific research, Churchill?
2: Yeah, I think it's uh, also just to add on, you know, how, how research can really help in, in driving, you know, this 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 transition to, you know, eradicating um, poverty is, is and it, it really helps policymakers in decision making, right? So, for instance, in my case, you know, um, as I've mentioned, this off-grid electricity sector is still really new, you know, and policymakers are really asking a lot of questions about how do you onboard private sector and, you know, enable, provide an environment for them to work towards reaching this 100 Percent electrification target, and you know they do this through what they call integrated um, electrification plans. And you know these electrification plans are are built on um, electrification models. You know, and 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 your model is really built on the assumptions that you make. And you really have to understand what's happening on the ground. You know, and so it's crucial to have researchers sort of asking these questions and making these models realistic enough, such that you know the policymaker can make effective decisions. Uh, going forward yeah
0: i want to go to the beginnings quickly talking about what you're doing now but i want to look back adina was there a key moment a magic moment that you do what you're doing today
1: i think i was always concerned with topics of 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 justice um since i was a very little girl like in in school if somebody got excluded i thought this was not fair um and so on and then i think when i started travelling i was more exposed to the inequalities of the of the world i remember remember one incident in london and i saw a beggar in front of a very fancy mall and it just didn't make sense to me i was just like why why is this person here? Why is this person so poor? Why are people spending so much money on stuff that maybe they don't even need? How how is that possible in this in this world? And then it continued when I um, after finishing my my high school uh, the Kimi in 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 Zurich I went traveling I went to India and there again I I was yeah I was exposed to poverty slums um, and it just made me think like how is this possible and I wanted to understand more. And um, and also to understand what one can do to to change that or to contribute to change. And Churchill why do you do what you're doing?
2: Yeah, I don't really have an aha moment honestly. Um I think for me it's always just like improving people's lives has always been part of what I've done. You know, I remember like in high school um for a science congress, uh, a friend of mine so in Kenya, a friend of mine and I um we we came up with this water sterilizer solution that was supposed to, you know, um compete with the existing one in the market so that you know people could afford to, you know, access the product to purify water. Um I've worked with Engineers Without Borders as part of my university studies, you know, um, we, like for me, it's always just been something that I've always done, you know, it's, it's just for me, it was more, I, I had a lot of questions around, you know, w- what is this, this, this idea of energy, right? Like, like, why is it so important, right? And, and how can I connect, you know, my, my, my love for energy and, you know, this work that I already do, you know, and, and I kind of met it at this um, intersection,
0: Adina, you spoke about inequality or imbalance in the world. We spoke about places in Eastern Africa who are lacking access to energy. But at the same time, maybe from a privileged point of view of Switzerland, we don't really see what we might be lacking, what we could learn from countries such as Rwanda or Kenya. Do you have any examples for that?
1: Um, sure. I think one example um that i I, I like is um access to mobile phone money. And uh, there, Kenya is really a pioneer. So already 10 years ago, when I lived in rural Kenya, I was able to pay my electricity bill by mobile phone. And that is something, you know, that most of us still are not able to do today. We paid um, co-workers, we paid through mobile phone. And, you know, that was already a a long time ago. And in some way, Kenya really, and and in many countries actually, in really sweet really um uh, um, they they never had landlines, right? So they went directly from like no connection to to mobile phones. There is uh, less than one percent of the population that has a landline, and uh, mobile phone access is uh, almost universal. Yeah. So I think that yeah, that's a, that's a it's great funny example. You
2: mentioned that um, because like a lot of times, like you so you sort of um, you you're in Kenya and you're so used to like just having your phone and you can pay for everything with your phone, right? It doesn't matter where you are. And then like you know, I remember when we moved to South Africa and I'd moved to South Africa and it was because now you have to get a bank card you know you always that you, you have to swipe or tap it's a, it's a, it's like in my head it's always like it's so confusing and then you go back you, you kind of live in another space I and mean, then you go back home and you realize that you know you have access to this um this convenience you know everywhere it's it's super exciting so yeah
0: but it's a convenience you take for granted and then you only know when you don't have it yeah. that, that it's a convenience <laughs> and um, Adina you grew up in Switzerland as you mentioned And having lived in Kenya and and knowing places such as Eastern Africa, how did your prejudice of poverty change through your experience?
1: I think it's two things. One, I I realized that poverty is not about not having access, say, to a fridge or something. I think that's easy. I think what poverty often is about is really being stressed all the time, like hassling all the time. Because as soon as something very small goes wrong, you're really screwed. You know, I don't know, you break your leg or you have a small accident, you cannot go to work anymore. And you don't have insurance, you don't have sick leave, you don't have any of the safety nets that we have in in Switzerland. And I think something I I realized there for, you know, some, some time I spent there, I lived in very kind of simple conditions, like no fridge and so on. But that's not, that's not the point. That's easy. What is hard is to live with this constant stress and constant hassle. And you, your mind is just so occupied with making it through the day that there is little space for, for other things. And I think that's, um, that's one of the things I, I realized. And then the other thing that I think is um, in most places, people have this idea of an other who is even more poor or even <laughs> more worse off than than uh, than than they are? And I think, you know, one one story that that illustrates that very well is I, I was sitting at, at dinner with my friend Carol, and then she told her daughter, "Eat up your plate because the children in in Turkana, like in a in a poorer part of Kenya, are hungry." And the moment I heard that, I I really laughed because I knew the story, but people here would say children in Africa are hungry. And then I told her, and then she said, well, you know what people say there, they're going to say, well, children in Somalia are hungry. So there is in, in many places changed, sort of exactly hierarchy of exactly poverty, like in many yeah. places people think there is this other place where people are, are even poorer and 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 that's something that maybe from the outside we don't see like we we often make assumptions that are very generalizing and we don't see the nu- nuances w- within one place and and the differences I mean parts of Nairobi you feel like you're in New York like it's so glamorous and it's so cosmopolitan and, and all of that and then you have other parts of the country that are that are different and and same applies to Switzerland we are very different many differences within the country
0: and in some huts we don't have access to electricity either in switzerland somewhere in the mountains and you Churchill, what kind of prejudice did you have of switzerland or of europe and how did that change
2: um i only thought about like prejudices that i'd had um none comes to mind at the moment i think yeah it's it's for me it's it's, I guess maybe it's also because like having like even living in South Africa or having lived in Kisumu you know- maybe like um before I came to um Switzerland, I was like, you know, will the people be nice? will the people be kind you know um and, and are and they yeah, yeah, I would say that for sure that you definitely come to the country and it's it's a different experience relative to you know um you know a place like South Africa, you know where everyone is very vocal and very like, you know, hi, how are you? you know I mean Switzerland feel a bit more reserved you know and 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 that adapting to that also, definitely took a while, but no, I can't really think of any prejudices that I'd had before coming to Switzerland that I, you know, challenged. That, that were challenged when I came.
0: Adina and Churchill, we live in a very privileged country. We can just switch on the light, turn on our coffee machine, turn it off, whatever, do what we want. Take the tram to ETH, and which is uh, we 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 have electricity all the time, access to electricity all the time. And we know that other people are a lot poorer than we are here in Europe. What can each one of us do to reduce poverty in the world?
1: Um, I think on the one hand, like people um, can use the privilege that they have to kind of open doors for others. Um, And that can mean that you use your political voice to make sure that global issues are you know put on the on the agenda also on the political agenda in in Switzerland you can also use your voice to ask the company or the place where you work at to to make a difference to look at what is our impact on people in the global south are we harming any people can we change that can we contribute to to global um, to global solutions and people can also donate money to effective um, organizations, and they can also donate part of their time. You can also you can volunteer. Um, you can um, you know ask your workplace whether there could be a program run through your through your workplace, and of course, if you are at ETH, you can join um, ETH for Development. For everyone at ETH, but also everyone outside, we have a newsletter. You can subscribe to that and get information about, um, about our activities.
0: Churchill, what can i do if i want to
2: contribute to fighting poverty i think for me it comes down to that that what we talked about earlier on this this idea of the danger of a single story um we live in a time where you have access to so much information right you have access to podcasts that you can listen to you know that it's so important that you realize that even in the ac- in the context of let's say energy access you know this view of us and them is something that you should, like someone should really fight, right? That these are not people in need of saving, right? That these are people who are living their lives and, you know, that uh, like access to these enabling services can improve their quality of life. So I would say it's really just taking a step back and fighting a lot of like preconceived notions about what poverty is and really thinking about, you know, if this is a person just like me, you know, how are their lives going to be improved by, you know, access to A, B, C, D. And it's not like, how are they going to be saved from, you know, the situation that they are going through? So it's really just about, again, narratives and how you frame it in um, your mind.
0: Adina, you sent me a link to a TED Talk from the Nigerian-American novelist uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and then paraphrased this very, very um, impressing, impressive talk is that she says the single story or a single story creates stereotypes and the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue but that they are incomplete they make one story become the only story why did you send me the link I mean I love the talk but I'm interested to hear why you want to talk about several stories and not only one story
1: yeah I think that happens a lot um, in, in Switzerland when we talk about stories or, you know, situations in various African countries, um, and uh, yeah, and I think it, it happens a lot that we kind of summarize things to like one line, and it really does not give justice at all to the vast experiences and you know different you know cultures and and and. You know lifestyles and and stories um, of the of the continent, and um, I think it's really important that we that we change that. Churchill,
0: you tell stories on your podcast. Do yes. you want to tell us a sentence? Do you want to tell us something about your podcast?
2: Oh yes. Um. So it's called the Africa Green Collar Project, and and what we are really trying to do is we're trying to. Um, ask ourselves it's me and a few of my friends for, for my other friends from university and what we're really asking ourselves is you know what is the most uh, realistic way to get to you know to reach the the SDG goals and focusing on sustainability um we're looking at sustainability in the context of energy access Um water climate change um and uh food uh uh, food and hunger and what we do is we we use podcasts to talk to experts and ask them questions about you know what they're doing in their space you know um what do they see to be like some of the gaps in that space and how can young people fit um into the into that narrative because you know um there i I think it was it, it 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 came off from you know me and also a lot of my friends wondering you know what opportunities are out there for us as young people you know to contribute to making the world um, better so we do it through podcasts Uh, you can definitely check it out it's on Spotify Uh, it's and you can also go to our website it's www.greencollarafrica.org
0: and you can also check out Adina's TED talk Uh, you can find it on YouTube or wherever you wish Thank you for joining us, uh, Adina Rom and Churchill Agutu, both from ETH4D. My name is Jennifer Kakuri. I produced this episode of the ETH podcast together with Tiswachter's Audio Story Lab and sound designer Luki Fretz. We were here at the podcast tower from the podcast club.